Welcome to episode 87 of Board Gamers Anonymous. This week, BGA Fan Top 10. We're also going to be talking about Flip City and Domain. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. Our feature review is BGA Fan Top 10. So you may remember back when we were doing our survey, one of the questions was, what is your favorite board game? So we took all of those responses, we threw it into a chart, we broke it down, and we pulled out the top 10 games and a couple honorable mentions. So that's going to be our feature this week. Anthony at some point is going to jump in with some solo gaming segment for Xenoshift Onslaught. Our final round will be National Dog Week. And we got our acquisition disorders and our at the tables. There we go. Shouted from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. It's time for Shouted from the Tabletop. We got a little bit of news to uh, quickly run through. Hey, you guys remember Legend of the Five Rings? AEG owns that right now, right? If you're going to say right now, uh, no, they used to. Oh. This venerable card game is getting a makeover. You know how everybody gets makeovers nowadays? Well, Fantasy Flight is doing makeovers of games. They purchased the IP. Oh, and really? They're going to switch it very, I guess it's more complicated than it seems. They're just going to change the C in CCG into L and make it an LCG. It's a very simple cosmetic change, nothing bigger than that, I'm sure. But I got to admit, I like. Fantasy Flight's LCG model. Living card games are just more affordable than collectible card games. With the very next set, they're going to cut off support for the collectible, and then they'll have the LCG in time for Gen Con 2017. In the long run, guys, I mean, just comparing basically LCGs and CCGs, which do you think makes a more satisfying game experience? Definitely a fan of the LCG model, or I guess expandable card game if you don't want to use the... uh... Uh, copyrighted phrase. It's a little bit confusing to me because AEG does have an expandable card game, Doomtown. So I I don't understand why AEG didn't just choose to redo it themselves. I wonder if they've lost faith in the product or I'm not sure, but they are going to make the expansions, the last expansions that they promised. So at the very least, they're going to run out the story as they built it, but Hmm. It's it's a, it's been around for a long time. Maybe they just got tired of it. They they felt like they had nowhere to go with it. They might have taken the initiative to contact other companies to see if anybody wants to take that property off their hands. I don't know. But we shall see. It's going to take a couple of years, though, but I'm sure they will make a big splash. We'll, we'll find out when the time comes. I also wonder, are they going to reset the narrative? Because El, uh, Legend of the Five Rings does the thing that AEG likes to do with its tournaments where – uh, narrative changes as you play, like the the way the world works becomes different. Like some characters die or what have you, and so I wonder if Fantasy Flight's going to reset it or are they just going to start from where they are now? Pick it up where it's, yeah, where they left off. Yeah. Interesting. That's actually a good question. Yeah, 
Um, I'm sure they're, they're going to tease a little bit of information between now and then. Um, a couple quick awards news. This is the season of awards. Um, just to let you know what games out there are getting the buzz. Voyages of Marco Polo won a German award, the Deutscher Spiel Price, for Game of the Year. That award leans toward heavier games. Has Italian designers Simone Luciani and Daniel Tassini. They're the guys who created Zolk and the Mining Calendar. So those guys keep putting out a good product. Ranja, uh, that's gotten a lot of attention. It won a Portuguese Game of the Year award. And uh, what we need is more European awards honoring European games. Uh, but these guys, Michael Keller, Andreas Odendahl, are fairly new designers. So I think of this as like a Rookies of the Year award. Those are two games that you want to keep an eye on when they become widely available here. Voyages of Marco Polo and La Granja. Another game that's going to be coming out soon is called Galactic Connections. It's a Star Wars theme game, obviously, because there are Star Wars everything coming out in the next couple of months. There's going to be some really bizarre uh, products being released. This is a collectible trading disc game. Guys, what is a collectible trading disc game? Ogs. I had like an Iron Slammer. Yeah, that, that sucker was like two pounds. It Daniel, was... you remember Pogs? You're old enough? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got my collection still. Really? Yeah, I was like the last kid in my neighborhood. I always held on to these things. So I was like the last kid in my neighborhood who was like, let's play Pogs, guys. And so I had – and me, no one wanted to play with me because I had like a solid Iron Slammer that weighed like two pounds, which might as well have been <laughs> wow. cheating. Um, but yeah. – I I don't think this is going to be. This is much bigger than that. Um, it's similar to the collectible card games where there's going to be print on it and everything, but we don't know much about it. They're not releasing any information yet, and you're not going to be able to ask your local store owner because they're not going to have a clue. This is a Walmart exclusive that they've set up through the Topps Trading Card Company. That is not a phrase that inspires confidence in games. Walmart exclusive. exclusive. (laughs) And, like, uh, so I've looked at them. So they're these little hex chips, essentially, with, like, pictures and just the name of the thing on. There's no numbers or anything. So I'm guessing it's going to have to be a really simple, maybe, placement game or something like that. Where you're building the board out as you go. Yeah, like, go, but with hexes or something. Because you can't... But there's no information on the chips, so if they have special powers, you're going to have to be referencing a freaking dictionary as you play. Yeah. Tops is not a game company. They're just interested in selling cards. Walmart is interested in moving products. So I'm guessing you know this is going to be less a game and more of just a, a stocking stuffer, basically. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, those old collectible toys they give out at like Burger King and and uh, McDonald's. Yeah. Where, yeah. Like, the, you know, the whole point was just to have them, right? And some news from the world of high stakes board gaming. Yes, chess is still a big thing. An Italian chess player was kicked out of a tournament. Chess tournament. He was ranked around fifty one thousandth in the world, which is still like that's pretty know, high. Well, yeah, I know. It's 500 million places higher than me. Um, that's not bad. Yet he got all the way to the second last round of this tournament, and people were wondering how this low-ranked guy could, could do that. He always sat there at the table with his hands tucked under his arms and his thumb under his arm print. He never moved for hours at a time. People got suspicious. So they uh, he wouldn't consent to a strip search or taking off his shirt, so they passed a metal detector over him, found he was wearing this pendant, 
that had a hidden camera in it, and it was all wired up. The guy had a hidden camera at a chess tournament. Wait, so he was like pulling, like, like, like getting messages in his ear about it's, how to play? Yeah, this was supposedly Morse code. It was some sort of, he was getting pulses. His thumb was tapping, he was sending out um, you know, moves, and he was receiving Morse code. It was all, man. Wait, yeah. so he, he was using Morse code to cheat at chess. Yes. I feel like you know he's what? from the wrong century. Well, you know, if you're going to play a, a retro, an old game like that, you're going to use old communications <laughs> systems. Why not? I guess, but that's a lot of effort. Like, that's full-on espionage. Like, this guy could have a profitable career in espionage, and here he is using those skills to cheat at chess. You know, in other countries of the world, this is a big deal. I guess they must have big sports contracts with chess champions. Um, I've the, got a, a good friend of mine just got Grandmaster, and he's very excited about it, but it's yeah. it is a big deal to the people who are into that community, and it's a pretty big community. Yes. So, you know, he was not bad at 51,000th, but I'm sure he would have rocketed right up the charts with a win at that tournament. Um, that would have been big for him. But it got me to thinking, could could cheating be going on in the world of board gaming, um, other other games? And I sort of thought Scrabble. There, there's a way you could have a little hidden camera at Scrabble showing the tiles and someone's doing all the research in their dictionaries and then somehow getting the code out. They could do, they could do this with um, a Morse code. Yeah, that'd be really easy, in fact, because, you know, just letter by letter. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And, I mean, there, there are certainly, in, in board gaming more generally, right, there's the person who just quote-unquote forgets that they had to pay an upkeep cost every turn. or mm. And, you know, and it's difficult because sometimes people just do forget. But, uh, Man, okay. It can happen. We Every once in a while, like once a year, we hear of some cheating scandal or someone trying to get away with uh, some fancy moves at a tournament. There's more and more money going into it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Next item. Uh, oh. Remember Few Acres of Snow, the, the broken game? Few Acres of Snow is um, a Revolutionary War era game or a French and Indian War, a war between Canada and the colonies. Mm-hmm. Actually, a pretty good strategy game, the format of the game. It was, it was based on deck building, okay. uh, one of the early deck building war game types. And somebody broke it by devising the strategy called the Halifax Hammer, where one side would win like 95% of the time. So it was broken. There was, there was an online web uh, website, Yukata, that uh, digitized the game and created a set of alternate rules that people could try out to uh, see if they could even it out. But Asmodee, who owns it, just felt like this was unfixable. You can't do anything with it. So they've dropped it. They're hmm. not printing them anymore. They don't even ha- own it, own the rights, I guess. They dropped everything. So that means, guys, do we want to try and fix this game and reprint it? This could Let's be the first game under the BGA label. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, let's fix games. Come on, we like breaking them, but do we like fixing them? That's the point. I mean, is it worth fixing it? It'd be fun, definitely. I mean, I wonder how much of it, though, is just not so much that they couldn't fix it, but that they realized that the, the name was already associated oh, with being broken, yeah. and so maybe there's a marketing reason to stay away from Nobody's it. Nobody's going to want it, yeah. Yeah. So, no, a company like Asmodee wouldn't, wouldn't want to be associated. You're right. Maybe some little little publishing company will give it a try. We'll see. Yeah, it could be a way to make your name, right? It could be, look, I fixed the broken game. Yeah. Pay attention to me. 
and there are enough uh, collectors that would uh, that would jump in on that. Definitely. A few weeks ago, I reported on a Kickstarter court case. The, tur- the Attorney General of Washington State went after a game creator who failed to deliver on rewards after he um, after the Kickstarter was successful. So a judge ordered him to pay restitution to all the backers, plus uh, civil penalties amounting to a little over $1,000 per backer. It wasn't a big game. Asylum, uh, it was uh, a card game. But still, I think that's the first time that someone's ever been sued in court. The debate is raging online over crowdfunding, whether people who put money into it should view it as an investment in a proposed project, or are they actually purchasing a product? In other words, a reward. Mm-hmm. When when you approach Kickstarters, how do you how do you guys look at that? I definitely think of it as pre-ordering. I mean, there is that it, the there's a little bit of investment in it, and in that you can help a company succeed at an early stage. But it to me, it's all about it's pre-ordering, right? You are giving money for a good. You're not giving money for shares in the company, so it's not really investment, at least not in the conventional sense. It's consumption just on a delayed schedule, just like. If you hire a contractor who says they'll get the job done in three months, right? But, you know, uh, nowadays that's starting to turn in, into that with all the, the game companies doing that. It's pre-ordering. But think back to the early days when struggling designers and inventors were trying to get their product out and they weren't sure that they'd be able to get to market. It's, hmm? Then it's just like especially charitable pre-ordering. Like it's, <laughs> but it's still pre-ordering, right? The, yeah. the, the contract, the implicit contract is that not even implicit, explicit contract is I give you dollars, you give me product. Now, it just happens to be that I understand this product is not going to be ready for six months, and I'm okay with that, especially knowing that you wouldn't be able to make it otherwise. But it is dollars for product. Yeah. I mean, I think the general conceit is, as you said, Daniel, that the donation or the backing is just a pre-order, at least when it comes to board games, but the idea of Kickstarter, and as Drew said, the initial premise behind all of it was that you would be supporting a company, supporting people, supporting a project in order for it to, to come to fruition on some level, whether or not you were able to benefit from that. Now, you can say that there is the usually the dollar backer level. Now, sometimes that's used in order for you to purchase other things, but... There is some level sometimes where you're just giving money to, in order to give money so you see the game produced. Yeah, but Kickstarter hmm. has rules against pure donation, right? So this is not a this is not Indiegogo, this is not a fund me or whatever it's called. Go fund me, right? It's right. You there has to be a tangible reward even, even if for it's, the dollar. Right, like you're on the mailing list. That's Yeah, that's but I something. think the Yeah, but I think the the idea, at least, is that you're backing to have that project created, not necessarily you getting the project. I think that the way that Kickstarter designed itself, it, it's supposed to be explicitly that you are going to get the project. And, I mean, yes, you're helping to get the project created, and it wouldn't be otherwise, assumably, presumably, right, uh, for many of these companies. But part of the contribution, right, part of the deal is that you will get the product. It can't just be that you're giving them money to help it happen because that would be a more standard investment practice or donation, which Kickstarter does not allow. No, but you, I remember back a few years when, when Kickstarter was still fairly new and people who invested in it 
made it sound like they were investing in it, like uh, they want to help these new guys try and bring this game to market. They want They they weren't doing it for the reward. They were doing it to try to promote new games, new designers to to stimulate the industry. Well, yeah, and I bought games at my friendly local game store at you know twice the price they would be online <laughs> because I wanted to keep my friendly local game store open. Yeah, it's primarily but if they an didn't investment. give me the game, I'd be kind of pissed. Yeah, right. Like the the part of the deal was yes, I'm buying this something that I normally wouldn't buy, but I am still buying this. Right. right. So this thing belongs to me, even though my motivation might be beyond just owning the thing the deal is i get it well i'm curious to see if there are going to be more court cases over um successful kickstarters that never really turned into successful products that'll be uh, something interesting uh one final bit of news good news for the hobby out of barnes and noble the uh, hobby uh, business site icv2 has been tracking barnes and noble and i've been tracking icv2 so I will share the news with you guys. The most recent quarter, Barnes & Noble's revenues were down from over a year ago, 1.5%. It, uh, their stocks took a hit and everything. But, guys, that's the fault of the Nook. Remember, remember the Nook? Think back in your memories deep long ago. I uh, had no. a Nook for a while, and then I think I think my sister has it now. It kind of got handed around in the family. Nobody and- wants it, huh? <laughs> It, I mean, it was pretty cool for a little while. I read a couple of books on it, and I was like, this is not much better than reading on a computer. Well, sales, yeah, sales are plummeting, so it, it's making their numbers look bad. As soon as Barnes & Noble jettisons the nook, the better their outlook will be. Because on the bright side, the sales of actual real items has gone up, and especially the toys and games department, up over 17% from a year ago which seems to fit right in with other numbers that we hear from the industry. Um, 17%, quite a, quite a jump for Barnes & Noble. We're going to see them continue to expand that section. And we're also getting closer to my prediction. Remember, Chris, the start of the year, I predicted a Barnes & Noble merger with Toys R Us. It's going to happen. All right. <laughs> I just don't know if it's going to happen before the end of the year, but it's going to happen. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Barnes & Noble kid. That's it. <laughs> I gotta say, I have uh, I have mixed feelings about this because you know, as a board gamer, I'm like, yeah, board games are taking over the world. But as a bibliophile, I see bookstores not doing well. I'm like, people read more books, please. Well, they'll read <laughs> books; it'll just be rule books instead. Ah, yes, the the great literature that is <laughs> how to play Settlers of Catan. Well, that's how Shakespeare got started, right? Yeah, writing rule books for that's uh, right. <laughs> to be or not to be the first player—that is the question. <laughs> Turn to page three for the answer. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to follow that one up. We're going to end right on there. That is the news from the tabletop. All right, thanks, Drew. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's so for much. acquisition but disorders this know. week, it's all about the miniatures. Right, Daniel? It's all about those minis, those minis, those minis. No cubes. No, no cubes? Yeah. yeah. I don't really like cubes. <laughs> This is my, like, third favorite three-dimensional shape. <laughs> third? Wow. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's they're all right, right? They're not yeah. special, though. They're no pyramid. That's true. 
There are no pyramids. <laughs> but yeah, so my acquisition disorder this week is, as Chris hinted, a mini-based game. As many of you have probably noticed, Cool Mini or Not has launched another Kickstarter, which means I just lost $100. Uh, or rather, <laughs> I spent $100. There you go. Well, we both uh, spent $100. Yeah, everybody spent $100. I don't know how long they've been up. I think they've only been up for a couple of days, and they already have something like four times their goal. Because it's cool, many or not, and this is what they do. And they partnered up again with Guillotine Games, and Eric Lang is the designer here again. So this is an incredibly well-experienced team working together. This Let me ask you a question, that... Daniel. Yeah. So you just look at the Kickstarter. It says uh-huh. cool, many or not. Uh-huh. It says Guillotine Games. Uh-huh. And it says Eric Lang is the designer. Uh-huh. Do you just automatically back it without seeing anything yeah. else? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Me too. I mean, it's, it's, it's a team that <laughs> has yet to produce some significant failure, right? They're just, they're very good. Uh, this is this is Blood Rage, right? This is the team that did Blood Rage. This is, you know, Kumani or Not and Gay Team Games work together to make Zombicide. They've been very successful. The game that they've got right now is The Other's Seven Sins. And um, this is pretty interesting for Kumani or Not. So it's a cooperative game where you fight against embodiments of the seven deadly sins right so sloth pride gluttony etc who are trying to take over the city essentially and eventually the world through forces of corruption direct invasion or what have you there are a couple of different play styles one where you just fight the bad guys with you know fists and bullets one where you try to resist their corruption and one where you try to redeem the city as a whole uh, so these different play styles, coupled with the fact that they have different scenarios, a modular map, multiple different heroes, and multiple different uh, villain characters who are played by one of the characters. Like one person takes the enemy side, right? So sort of dungeon mastery setup, uh, which all have their own unique dynamics and deck of special powers, means that this game is incredibly replayable with numerous radically different play styles that can emerge depending upon who you pick and what powers they have. Probably the most interesting thing is this corruption dynamic that the heroes get, uh, which makes me think of all these, you know, the TV shows like Buffy or Angel where somebody takes, they get desperate, right? The hero gets desperate, so they do something kind of dark, but it makes them more effective. Uh, And essentially what you do there is you can take corruption to increase your power, But if you max out your corruption, bad things happen. It could just be that you're overcome by corruption or things could happen to mess with everyone else. Um, So it's a really cool way of balancing it out. And And we saw that in the most recent Arcadia Quest expansion, right? Right, right. So this, this idea of buying power at a cost of corruption, which can come back and bite you in the butt later, very similar to that. Uh, maybe that was a test of this idea. And here it's a very central mechanic. The minis are, of course, incredibly well sculpted. They're a little bit grotesque because it's a horror game, but, you know, that's what you want from a horror game. So, you know, whatever. Um, I, so I wouldn't call them beautiful. I would call them well-made. And as usual, they've got a couple of Kickstarter exclusives, and they're burning through uh, the... Uh, the stretch goals at an alarming rate. So there are already a bunch of extra minis coming in it and a couple of characters and new tiles and a fair number of Kickstarter exclusives that makes it worth getting in on the Kickstarter while you can rather than waiting and to pick it up on the market. If you're kicking yourself for not having backed Blood Rage, as pretty much anyone who didn't back Blood Rage should be. Right here. 
Yep, yep. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Uh, then you should probably jump in on this because it looks like it's going the same way. Um, it's a very exciting game. You can They have played through a full playthrough video online. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty pumped for it. It's a genre that I don't really have anything in, like a horror game. I do have Dark Gothic, which is kind of in that zone as well, but this is, I think, further into the horror aspect. If you, if you liked the later seasons of Supernatural where they were fighting, well, I consider them later. I guess they're not that much later anymore, but like where they were dealing with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all of that, this may be a, uh, a worthy game for you. This is probably the theme that you'll really enjoy, the sort of eking out salvation at a cost. Is, uh, seems like the, the whole point of this. So yeah, uh, that's that's my acquisition disorder this week. Uh, the others, Seven Sins. It's $100 to back it on Kickstarter, and you get a bunch of cool stuff and great minis, uh, as we've come to expect from Cool Mini or not. Uh, and there's enough Kickstarter exclusives for me to say, get in our Kickstarter or you will regret it. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I would love to see at some point in the future if they could do something like Cyclades and Kemet where you can use the characters in one game in another game or some sort of crossover. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I mean, there's some cases, in some ways it'd be very, it'd be difficult, right? Because you've got very different styles. Right? Arcadia sure. Quest is really cute. Blood Rage is like <laughs> the cover of a metal album, right? Sure. It's hyper-masculine Conan the Barbarian. And the others is like grotesque, uh, grotesque, grotesque eldritch horrors. Sure. Um, You're saying that you you wouldn't want the uh, the Monkey King fighting the seven <laughs> sins? <laughs> no, I feel like that would strain my sense of theme. Okay, but it is a uh, it is something to keep in mind, right? That they could have these sort of interactions eventually with some of their games as their collection gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Sure, they're building the universe, so it wouldn't be surprising if there was sh- shared realms, kind of mm-hmm. like how Marvel has. You know, the traditional superheroes, and then you have the mutants, and you have these dark kind of gothic creatures and such. Yeah. Okay, very cool. So, for my acquisition disorder this week, is pretty much everyone's acquisition disorder on some level or another. If you haven't been living under a rock, you're pretty much aware that Star Wars Episode Seven will be hitting theaters very soon. And recently, they had their... Force Friday kind of explosion of games and products, and one of the one of those products was Star Wars X Wing Miniatures game, The Force Awakens corset. Now, if you are an X Wing Miniature fan and you've already collected the corset, there isn't anything radically different here because you're basically getting another X Wing and two more Tie Fighters. But this X Wing and these Tie Fighters are from Episode Seven. So, yeah, you definitely want to pick this up. (laughs) The TIE Fighters are amazing. And I think that Fantasy Flight has really stepped up their game with the paint job on these miniatures. They always did a really nice job, but you could see there's a lot more detail here. So, yes, TIE Fighters black with the white, a little, little splash of red. The cards are really interesting, especially if you are a fan of Star Wars, because you want to know about the new characters that are coming into the set and by actually picking this up you could get some ideas now it's it hasn't been said yet whether everything in this box is going to be in the movie or if there's some sort of license to kind of expand from it so 
you're looking at cards like the Zeta Ace and the Zeta Squadron. So I'm assuming we're going to have Zeta Squadron on some format, but you never t- you can never tell. It just might be a background situation. There's also the Omega Squadron with the Omega Ace. Now I don't know if these will be actual characters in the game, but they look very cool. And the X-Wing itself is a gray X-Wing with a blue paint job. And then you have your standard supplemental cards. You have your droids. You have your weapon systems. You have your photon torpedoes. So basically this is a basically this is a lot more of the same which is not a bad thing especially if you're a huge star wars fan you don't need this set but then again we're not too sure the interaction of these cards with previous sets or if the episode 7 stuff will just be in its own little universe in tournament play sometimes they kind of reserve certain cards and certain ships for certain play modes and it's nice to see that fantasy flight has not given up on the X-Wing Miniatures games with their Armada system out there now. So as soon as this actually gets to our online stores and our local friendly local game stores, I'm going to pick this up, and I'm thinking this might be awesome. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. I mean, and they've got a new core set coming out, too, with this, this Force Awakens. So this is... Like, this might be on, uh, if it's in the same system, right, if they're actually intending to keep them together, which it looks like they are, now you have a choice of which core set to buy, which is really cool, uh, I think, anyway. So, like, when you're coming into the game, you can decide, do you want to pick up the new guys or the the classics? Yeah, they're going to have a couple of expansion packs, too. You're going to pick up an X-Wing or a TIE Fighter. Like you said, it's it's pretty cool. If you're a new fan to Star Wars and... This is a new, or this is a new game for you. Maybe this will get new fans into board gaming. Do would you say it might awaken them? <laughs> oh, uh, Daniel went to the dark side. All right, <laughs> they have cookies. All right, they do. That's this is what I keep hearing. <laughs> and now at the table with BGA. So now let's talk about what's in our table this week. Daniel, why don't you start us off? Well, uh, my game this week is actually one we both played this week, uh, which is called Domain. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with Domain, what you do is it's, it's a... Uh, I don't really know how to describe it. I think, Chris, you came up with the best description of it. It's kind of like that game Dots, where you sort of circle other people in. Yes. Uh, and you're, what you're trying to do is you set down your castles, and you are trying to make a, co- a continuous line of fences to block you off. Uh, from the rest of the world and have a domain. And then you expand that domain through various means and try to conquer nearby territories uh, and maintain your own domains. And you have, I think, five castles that you have to protect while doing this and try to keep your domains from collapsing. It's a very simple game, despite being actually kind of hard to describe. Uh, it's one of those games you really have to just, as soon as you see it on the table, because it's very much about spatial reasoning, uh, as soon as you see it, though, you, you get it. Um, it's it's very simple. It's quick to play. I found it pretty enjoyable because I enjoyed the sort of strategic management of spatial resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know, Chris, you had a somewhat different reaction to it. Yes, this game is from the original designer for Settlers of Catan, or what's just known now as Catan. So the initial setup of the game, just like Catan, is you're going to be able to place your starting positions, which kind of help you locate your areas in which you're going to build out from. So 
almost identical to Catan in that way. I think that was one of the challenges of the game. And Daniel and I being new to this game and Dave teaching this game, it was always a little bit hard to figure out where you should start your initial placements. Now, since your initial placements are not going to move, but the, the walls are going to move, it was essential to make the right decisions right from the start. But beyond that, I don't know. I like the, the pieces here. I like the fact that you can play cards to move the walls or build walls or to add knights to kind of strengthen your domain. But generally, you're looking at these little black walls, these little pieces that you have on the board, and just trying to figure out you know, how far can you move something and then twist it or twist it one way or join walls and then people can't push it on you. It was okay. It was just, it was just okay. I mean, it, it was a lot of AP because you have to keep track of where everyone else's domain is and how they're pushing it on you. So sometimes you get lucky and you're in a good spot and you can kind of push out. No one's pushing it on you. Sometimes not so lucky. It has some interesting choices to be made as far as what domain to push out and then when to lock out, lock out somebody else. I would say beyond the initial placement, there wasn't any overtly strategic decisions that you were making because as the game goes on, the board becomes tighter and tighter and you really are at the mercy of your neighbors and sometimes what they do shuts down everything that you do and that's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it leaves you with a game that the decisions are kind of outside your control and with a game of this length, I really like to be able to play a lot more than I did. Yeah, it's it's much more tactical than strategic, right? It's much more short term sure. decisions than long term. I mean the really the the primary strategy is to keep as many tactical options as possible open. Sure. For yourself later on. Um, because as Chris pointed out, the board gets tight fast. And if you didn't leave doors open for yourself, then you're going to be just embattled on all sides. I enjoyed it, I think, more than Chris, but it's still definitely not a run out and buy this. For me, it's going to be a play, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, I, I don't know what you'd think. Would you, would you put it as a dodge? I would put it as a dodge just because the decisions you're making are not so much based upon what you're building or the choices you're making as it is your neighbors. So I would kind of place this in the realm of five tribes where when you get to make your move, everything's kind of changed because everyone else has made their moves and it really just kind of leaves you with a couple of options. Whether or not you're locked down, I just thought the options and the amount of AP as far as trying to figure out where you're pushing your walls wasn't warranted for the game time, the game length. Fair enough. Yeah. The game that I got to table this week with Chris was Flip City by Tasty Minstrel Games. Now, this small, I guess, micro game is something that they've been producing in mass quantities lately, trying to kind of fill up that little, little tiny market that seems to be growing every day. Now, in Flip City, you are going to be playing a very, very basic deck building game. And when I say basic, I mean extremely basic. Because being that this is a short filler game, you're going to be starting with a small deck of nine cards. Now, your deck is face up in your hand, actually, so you'll always be able to see which card is the first card that you're going to be playing that round. 
And the reason that you're holding the deck in your hand and you're not shuffling it is because the cards are double-sided with a different building and function on each side. Now, on the card itself, there is a number of different icons to pay attention to. There may be victory point markers, there may be frowny faces, and there may be coins on the cards. When you play a card from your hand, obviously you'll know the top card and you'll play it down. If it has a frowny face, then that's basically one strike against you. If you get two strikes, your turn is over. Now, why that is a bit of a problem is because there is going to be four cards in your hand at the very start that's not only going to have frowny faces, but is going to have an action that's going to require you to play the card, even if it's just still in your hand. So most of the opening game is play a card, frowny face, play another card, frowny face, your turn is over, start another turn, frowny face, oh, I got to play another card because this card's forcing me to do so, my turn is over again. And basically what you're trying to do is trying to get just barely enough money to flip those initial cards over so that your turns don't end so quickly. So there is a bit of a press your luck element to this game. But basically the game comes down to whoever can play 8 victory points in a turn or play 18 cards total. Now... The game itself, the graphic design, the artwork is nice. It has that kind of Farmville type of look to it, almost like an Imperial Settlers, but not as quality. The card quality itself is decent, but probably not as for a deck of cards that's going to be in your hand the entire time. I really didn't enjoy this game. I thought it was underwhelming. I thought that, you know, for a deck builder, the beauty and the fun of that type of mechanic is being able to select from a number of cards and building up an engine in your hand. And here, there's only four choices of cards. And even though they do flip over, there's nothing radically different about them. And where the frowny faces are a similar mechanic to a lot of other games where you get these cards that either it just doesn't do anything for you, like if you buy a province in Dominion or several other games like trains where you you get waste and then that really doesn't help your hand but at least you get to do something and i think for me personally when i'm playing a game and there's turns where i can't do anything or i can't do anything of fun that's really a game that i don't want to play so i'm gonna say for flip city dodge it and actually if i didn't choose to dodge it honestly i might actually burn this game i think any game that takes the fun away from a mechanic even though it's trying to do something a little different is something that's actually working against the industry and not for it wow okay so you've not had a good week for gaming no i i would say that there was two frowny faces this week at the table and when there's two frowny faces at the table is then automatically over fair enough fair (laughs) enough all right so that's our at the table this week And now, BGA's feature review. So for our feature review this week, we wanted to talk about your top 10 games. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we took the survey results from our Cool Stuff Inc. contest and arranged them in a top 10 based upon how many times listeners pick that game as their favorite game of all time. 
Now, before we get into the top 10, we want to tell you about some honorable mentions. Legendary Encounters, which includes Alien and Predator, with one vote for the, just the generic legendary system. Mice and Mystics, Agricola, Small World, and Twilight Imperium. All but, good games, well-deserving of honor and mentioning. Yeah, and these ones just missed out. So if these games are your favorite games, please reach out to us on our social media and let us know why and why they should be in the top 10. You should have gotten your friends to vote with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you had your chance. Tell them, Daniel. They had their chance. You had your chance and you blew it. You blew it. <laughs> You let these games down, man. You let them down. All right, so let's talk about the games that knocked out your favorite games. Number 10, Castles of Burgundy. This is a Stefan Feld classic and probably, in general, our favorite Stefan Feld game. We've been talking about this recently, that they're going to have a Castles of Burgundy dice game and a Castles of Burgundy card game. So, Daniel, what did our fans say about Castles of Burgundy? Well, what you see in the comments about Castles of Burgundy is something you see throughout the comments about tons of games, even ones that didn't make the honorable mentions, let alone the top ten, which is that we have a lot of fans who are big into these easy-to-learn games that they can get their friends and family into, right? So their their spouses, their significant others. It's a game that lets you move from the gateway into what we might consider genuine hobby games. Right, the real stuff, so to speak. It's the, uh, it's our. Uh, I guess I shouldn't use a drug metaphor here, but you know, you get the you get the gist. Uh, it's it's a game that moves us up from the casual to the weekly game night where you get to crack out those really heavy games, and you know that's something that's valuable for any of us who want to have people to actually play with us. Uh, as most of us like to, except for Anthony, who can, you know, play by himself. Uh, so, a lot of people are enjoying the fact that it's sort of a next step game. So, for our number nine, it was Arcadia Quest, which is a game that Daniel and I recently got to the table and reviewed. And you love it. So, Daniel, what do they have to say about that? Uh, yeah, Arcadia Quest is, well, I mean, obviously the minis and the theme, right? It's a very charismatic game, so that, that's going to help it a lot, right? Beautiful artwork, great miniatures, and this is the sort of impression we're getting from the, the listeners. It's interesting to see that someone put both Arcadia Quest and Trajan, hmm. which strike me as very different games. But Arcadia Quest's campaign mode, its miniatures, the theme and the universe it's set in, the fact that it's so expandable, uh, and the general influence it's had, made it one of our fans' favorites. Great. All right, so for our number eight game, we have Viticulture with Tuscany. So this is a Jamie Stegmeier classic game that we've got a chance to play again and again, and we really do enjoy it, and it seems like our fans do too. What do they have to say about that one? Uh, don't play it without the expansion. That there you is what go. they have to say about that one. <laughs> in like a resounding, unanimous voice. It's amazing, actually, because you know, we didn't really ask you to throw in that sort of detail. But awesome. over and over again, it's great game, turned outstanding with expansion. I no longer play the base game. I only play with the expansion. Right. But it's an awesome work and placement game with a lot of paths to victory. And this is what makes Viticulture with the expansion one of the most popular games and uh, amongst our fans, amongst our listeners, amongst you all. 
Great. All right, for our number seven, we have Zaya. Legends of a Drift System. This is another Kickstarter game that exploded on the scene and did something really different. What did people have to say about this one, Daniel? Well, well the uh, the key word here is sandbox. Okay. Uh, Zia's apparently... I've actually never had a chance to play this game, and I, I really want to now, reading how wonderful this is. This game, you guys are giving me more acquisition disorders. Thanks. <laughs> uh, like I needed that. I needed less money. That's, how, that's the, the move for me to make. Uh, it's got great components... Right, metal coins and unique ship miniatures, a lot of player powers, and just a whole bunch of different ways to play the game. Right, There's lots of ways to, I guess, develop your strategy, uh, and it's a very open playing field. So I think the thing that really draws people to this game, uh, as opposed to other games, is going to be that it is super sandboxy. And I like sandbox games, so I'm going to have to give this a shot. Yeah, this game allowed you to do kind of a pick-up-and-deliver mechanic or go more like a mare clash and kind of attack other ships. So a lot of different possibilities with this game and some problems because you really had to kind of make your way in the universe. So a challenge, but a wonderful challenge too. Flexibility in gameplay, it's another thing that we see as a theme amongst fans, as things they really want. Yes. They want to be able to play it in multiple different ways and still have a chance at winning. It's true. Which is not surprising, right? Who doesn't? Absolutely. So for our number six, we have the perennial classic Ticket to Ride. While this may be a gateway game, it's by no means a game that you should play once and leave behind. And it seems like many of you did not do that either. So what were they saying about Ticket to Ride, Daniel? Well, Ticket to Ride, uh, like castles of burgundy is getting a lot of mentions as a way to get people into gaming now this is more of a true gateway game right this is an entry level yes. game uh whereas castle uh, of burgundy is sort of a next stepper but a lot of the reasons people are loving this is because it's an easy to teach game it's easy to learn and everybody seems to be down with playing it right it's not one of these games that's super intimidating everybody can get into it uh, but there is going to be some, you know, potential for deeper strategy, especially when you're playing with a more experienced group. Uh, so it's not one of those gateway games that you have to leave behind, right? It can mm -hmm. follow with you and, and get more complicated as you get more capable, which is something that is nice to have, right? You want to have a game that will stick with you. Excellent. So for our number five game, we actually are looking at the number one board game on Board Game Geek. And that would be Twilight Struggle. I gotta say, this is pretty fascinating because I always wondered who plays Twilight Struggle. I've actually seen it only played once or twice at game stores, but it's clearly an outstanding game and clearly something that you all love. The key word here is tension. Every single response that has Twilight Struggle as their favorite game mentions tension or tense. In it, And I mean every single one. Hmm. So Twilight Struggle, again, it's a game I've actually never had a chance to play either, which now I really want to, which is kind of scary because I know it's one of those heavier games. Uh, mentions that this game is amazing at creating a sense of tension, that you always sort of feel that you're on the precipice, which is appropriate given its theme, right, because you're on the precipice of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get you know, a sort of second mention for the historical theme, which people seem to uh, find a great deal of love with. Uh, so historical themes and high tension, apparently very popular. I, I can appreciate that. All right. So for our number four, we're going the other way. And 
actually, we're talking some of our acquisition disorders, so let's talk about Imperial Assault. Well, Imperial Assault's getting a lot of love because of its, uh, it's got a very strong tactical aspect uh, with a well-known and beloved theme. Uh, and it's got a sort of mixture of dungeon crawl and competition, which is sometimes hard to find. I mean, you get that in, say, Cutthroat Cavern, but a lot of times you've got more cooperative stuff, right? So, like, the, the Dungeons & Dragons game. So getting a little bit of competition in there is nice. Uh, it's also got a lot of different play modes and expansions. So it's a very open-ended game in that sense with a beloved theme uh, that's just hard to beat. Yes, they did a great job taking that original Descent mechanic and kind of reworking it for the Star Wars universe. And especially with Fantasy Flight doing such an outstanding job with the miniatures and the movie coming out, you really can't go wrong. Okay, so let's talk about our top three games. Do you have an idea of where they may be? So, for our number three game, it's going to be Catan. Or at least originally what we used to call it, Settlers of Catan. But for the kids these days, it's all about Catan. Them darn kids. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, Catan, it actually surprised me to see Catan on this list. Uh, not because, I mean, I, I'm honestly not a huge fan of Catan, but that's not the reason it surprised me. It surprised me because it's such an, an old classic, right? But I guess that's the same reason it made it on here, is... It is one of the few games in the hobby game market that has been around for as long as it has and still remains relevant. Yes. Uh, and so you definitely got to give it to Catan for that. It's also a great gateway game. It's a great way to get people into the hobby with multiple paths to victory and, you know, just a little bit of randomness. But it also, so you know, that, that eases the play for people who don't already know the, the path to victory, right? They don't already know the winning strategy. But it also rewards some, you know, some thought and that sort of thing. It's for an entryway game, a gateway game has about as much depth as you could handle at that level. So it's not too surprising, I guess, that Settlers of Catan ends up being number three on our listeners' poll. All right, so for our number two game, another game that maybe has been a little bit lost, but not lost by you, and that would be Dominion. What were they saying about this, Daniel? Well, so, you know, our key phrase here is replayability. It's also another gateway game where you can get people into the hobby, a good way to introduce them to deck builders. Now, most people just said it was very replayable. One of our listeners decided that wasn't specific enough and decided to give us the number of setup combinations that Dominion has. Wow. How many would you think there are, Chris? Oof, there is a lot of expansions there. Um, are we talking thousands? Oh, oh, poor you, Chris. 5.5 sextillion set wow. combinations <laughs> in Dominion. So, yeah, thousands would barely begin to scrape the surface. All right, this well, is... I just I just have the base game, man. Just give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, it's more than, I guess, playing each impossible game of chess. Sure. So, Dominion is might might win the single most variable game out there the single most replayable game in that sense out there okay uh so that's that is pretty amazing i did not realize exactly how replayable i mean it makes sense because you go to you know board game cafes or game stores and they just have the dominion shelf right sure it's just true 40 different expansions to the game and the base game and all the different variants 
but that is 5.5 sextillion setup. Thank you, listener. That is indeed a fun fact. Yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think the the shame is probably never having the opportunity to get to all of those. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I want to do five and a half sextillion times. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Now, there was one game that pushed past all of the other games in our survey. Pushed past all of the great classic games like Dominion and Catan and Castles of Burgundy. And that game is Dead of Winter. Dead of Winter! <laughs> uh, I love Dead of Winter, so I'm very happy to see that it took this number one spot. Now, we have to acknowledge that part of that has to be because Dead of Winter is sort of the new hotness, right? It's it's still relatively fresh compared to most of what we've been talking about so far. Sure. But it's also just an amazingly thematic, cooperative game with the single best creator mechanic out there. Got a lot of variation and difficulty you can set up. And it's, as you want of a good co-op game, brutally unforgiving if you decide you're ready for that. It's tense. It's got a great theme. Probably the only game, I think, that does the zombie survival theme well. Mm -hmm. And the Crossroads mechanic is uh, an amazingly promising mechanic and one that we know is going to be coming back again. And I'm so excited to see it come back again because it really provides a lot of interesting choices and replayability for the games in which it's used for dead of winter and for this new one this crossroads sci-fi game that may or may not be happening at some point in the future yeah as you said this game does so many things right it actually nails down the zombie theme without kind of like going back into old tropes the crossword the crossroads mechanic is brilliant especially at the larger player counts so that you'll actually be able to trigger a lot of those, you know, special conditions. And as a co-op, not just having a traitor element to it, but having a individual victory condition in which you're actually working against the greater good. And yet at the same time, it you still need to do that if you want to win. But by doing that, you're kind of making yourself look like the traitor. So, yeah, and and even though it, all of that's still in the game, there's no player elimination. Even if you get kicked out, you're just playing a different game where you're still trying to win. So, Dead of Winter does so very many things right that it's completely understandable while it, why it's on the top of our BGA Fan Top 10. Thank you all for your contributions and for, you know, doing the work for this episode for us. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, it was really interesting to read through these responses. And we have been reading through them and getting to know you guys a lot better, which is, you know, it's really exciting because without this sort of response, this kind of feels like a one-way process, right? We're just talking into the air. But having you guys talk back, we, we get to know you a little bit, and that's that's fun. Definitely. We always say that we're saving you a seat at the table and – Part of this podcast is not just the four of us, but it's you listening and you contributing to us so that we can make this podcast and everything that we do better. And hopefully together we can expand the tabletop hobby to unknown dimensions of the, I guess, what was it? Quadrillion numbers? <laughs> Sextillion. Sextillion. I don't actually know how many zero, zeros that is. Let me look this up. <laughs> well, whatever number of zeros that might be behind it. 
It is you that we do the podcast, and we love to get your responses. I got to tell you, when any of us comes across something on Facebook, something on Twitter, if you're posting to our guild on Board Game Geek, if you're rating us on iTunes or Stitcher, we really get excited. We really like to hear the feedback. And, you know, we craft our podcast around what you're looking to hear. So your top 10 games with the honorable mentions is a big plus for us because now we'll know what to take a look at in the future and probably craft some of our, if you like this, try that. So to kind of go back and repeat, our honorable mentions were Legendary Accounters, Mice and Mystics, Agricola, Small World, Twilight Imperium, and then our top 10 was Castles of Burgundy, Arcadia Quest, Viticulture with the Tuscany Expansion, Zaya, Legends of a Drift System, Ticket to Ride, Twilight Struggle, Imperial Salt, Catan, Dominion, and the number one choice, Dead of Winter. Okay, and Sextillion, by the way, if I'm reading this right, it's 5.5 times 10 to the 21st. So 55 with 20 zeros after it. Okay. This is absurd. All right, guys, ready for some gaming? I brought my favorite games. Got a couple new ones. Hello? Is anybody here? Hello? Hey, everybody. This week I have a game that I've been very eager to play for quite some time now, and it is kind of a unique one in a number of ways, um, not the least of which is that it comes from Cool Nanny or not, and there are no miniatures in the box. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot more of these in the future as they diversify and release a lot of awesome board games in general, but this one is a straight cooperative deck builder. It is called Xenoshift Onslaught. That's with an X and a Y, if you're trying to look it up. Uh, it was on Kickstarter not too long ago, and it is a very interesting game. If you if all you've done is seen it, it probably reminded you a lot of Starship Troopers or any of those other not-too-distant, near-future, uh, hard sci-fi movies or books. The whole plot of this game is that you work for a corporation, Nortech, that's going off into the galaxy and searching for this resource that happens to be incredibly valuable as fuel, but also incredibly dangerous and damaging, creating these mutated monster-like aliens that try to take you out while you're on their planet. So the whole goal of the game is to survive the onslaught of the alien. It's not going to be easy. Uh, like any good cooperative game, it's extremely hard. You're almost certain to die um, more often than you win. But there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate how well you play. The number of cards available is relatively small in comparison to some other deck builders. And there are a lot of optimal strategies depending on um, which of the different divisions you get and which of the different items are available to purchase. So real quick run through of how this game works. It is for one to four players. This is the solo segment. So obviously I'm talking about it from the solo perspective. But I have played it as well with a, a larger group of people. Played it with two, played it with three. I've heard that playing it with the full four can make the game almost interminably long, uh, upwards of an hour per player. So I have not played that. I can't uh, confirm or deny the, the length of a four-player game, but I have heard that. And based on the three-player game, I could see that happening. You are going to start with a 10-card deck like you would in most deck builders. It's going to be four units, very basic, and then six resource cards, uh, the Xenosatham. This is that 
crazy valuable, incredibly destructive stuff that you're you're out there mining. And you're going to basically every round you're going to draw up to six cards. You're going to draw an extra Xenosathum that you can then use as currency. And you're going to purchase cards from this shared board in the middle of the table if you're playing with other players. Um, there will be different cards available in terms of troops based on what wave you're in. There are three waves in the game, and each wave has three rounds in it, so nine total rounds. And then there is an item pool of 12 different items that are available to purchase. Uh, some of those items will be determined by your division. There are multiple divisions to draw from, so you'll draw those randomly at the beginning of the game. They include things like barracks and med bay. Um, and they're basically going to allow you different special abilities throughout the game, as well as certain things you can do during each wave that will stack on top of each other. Um, super, super important what your division is. Incredibly, it's almost impossible to win this game playing solo if you do not play to that division and build a deck around it. So it's almost a game that you have to play multiple times. And any good solo game, you're going to lose a decent amount. But you will guaranteed lose the first time you play this if you don't come into it with an idea of a strategy, which you probably won't because it'll be your first time in. Um, you might even lose the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and so on. But pay attention to those division cards. Pay attention to the troop cards that are available. The troop cards are the same every single time. The item cards are randomized a little bit, though there are certain items that will be out for each division every time. So the strategy you can build for these things is relatively finite there are random luck elements of course um once you purchase a card and have used it once it's going to go into that discard pile and get shuffled up and you don't know when it's going to come back out but you can burn certain cards you can get rid of the militia you can convert the xenosathum the low-cost xenosathum into higher-cost xenosathum you can keep your deck small and make sure you have only the good cards in there, um, which is super important in a game like this because it's extremely hard to succeed if you end up with a handful of bum cards. Um, now, the actual gameplay and combat. Once you've purchased all the cards you want to purchase each round with the Xenosathan you have, you're going to put your troops down on the lane in front of you and there'll be a lane for the nortech troops and then a lane for the aliens each of them with four slots they kind of fit together and you're going to put all four of your troops out or as many as you want to put out on the on your side of the board you'll attach any items or armor or weapons you want to attach to those characters and then you're going to put out the aliens you're going to put those ones out face down and as they are revealed one at a time from the middle to the back they're going to do whatever effect they do when they're revealed, which might be something like, you know, all the aliens are stronger, or this guy hits the first two people in line, or um, if one of your troops dies, we take it, basically turn it into a zombie for our side. A lot of different things that can happen on these reveals. And then you basically attack each other at the same time. So... If you can survive the attack of that alien, then your troop will remain, that alien will be removed, and the lane shifts over. If your guy dies and the alien remains, you remove your troop, goes to the discard pile, and your troops shift over. The goal is to be the last man standing. Um, if there are aliens left over on their side of the lane at the end of each round, they will deal whatever their uh, attack value is to your base in damage. And in the solo game, you only have 15 hit points. 
in the multiplayer game, you get 15 hit points per player. And that's a pretty significant difference. So if you've heard anything about the solo game with this, you've heard people say how hard it is. Here's why it's so hard. In the base game with multiple players, you have your hand of cards, you have your lane. You can give cards from your hand to someone else's lane. This allows you, if you have an extra good hand one round, you can give some of those cards off to someone else. If you had a good draw on the wave one round and there's still some troops left over in your lane so you don't need as many, you can help them out. In the solo game, you are on your own, so it's a lot tighter. If you don't draw the right cards one round and you take damage, you're automatically in the hole. I played a game of this uh, just yesterday, actually, and in the fourth wave, I got or in the fourth round, so the second wave, I got hit for, I think, five damage because there was one left over. It might have been the boss was at the end of the line. And that was pretty much it for me. I knew from then on I wasn't going to make it because there was, at some point, I'm going to take damage down the line. That's the kind of game it is. That's how tight it is. You really kind of have to get through the first three or four rounds with almost no damage or you're going to be hurting by the end of the game. Is it a good solo game? Is it possible to win? Is it possible to improve? Is it fun? Yes, absolutely. The thing about this game is that it's tight. And if you know that, and if you come into it knowing you're going to lose the first few times and knowing that you need to pay attention and build a strategy based on what happens to you, you're going to have fun with it. If you come into it expecting to be able to pick up on it as you play and kind of figure it out and understand what the flow of it's supposed to be and what cards you should be doing and be able to adjust to the game as it comes, you're going to lose first off and you're going to be unhappy second off because it's not quite as satisfying as some other games out there like Robinson Crusoe um, or Pandemic or any of the other cooperative games that you can kind of play by yourself. Now, some people will resolve this problem by playing two lanes, so basically playing two different hands. Um, throughout the game. This does actually mitigate a lot of those problems because you have two hands to draw from to build your lanes. It does make the game a little bit longer as well, and it can get a little confusing because you are managing two hands in a deck builder. If that doesn't bother you, and a lot of people it doesn't, I know a lot of people out there will play uh, two or three characters in Pandemic or Defenders of the Realm because it's really the only way to make those games work solo, then it works very well. But even just the solo mode, I feel it does scale effectively. And while I have not won this game yet, I've lost multiple times at this point, um, I've had fun doing it. And I felt like I've gotten stronger and I've gotten closer and I'm getting a better sense of what's working with each division and which items I need to have out there and what order I should be drawing these different troops in um, and purchasing with my Xenosathum so that I can make the right decisions when I get to waves two and three, when things really start to matter. It's brutal. It's, there's no other way to put it. You're going to lose a lot. I enjoy that, though, because I'm learning from it each time. It's not just beating me for the sake of beating me. It's not impossible to win. I've seen some of the combinations that people use to beat this game, um, You know, whether it was the item pool that came out or the cards they bought, and it makes sense. So I can see how those would work out. If you like the theme, if you like that hard sci-fi Starship Trooper-style game, if you like cooperative games, if you like deck builders, and if you're looking for a solo game that's extremely challenging and has a lot of different variability and replayability because of the different types of divisions that are in there, Xenoshift is a good game. I definitely recommend it. Suffice it to say, this is definitely a game worth owning if you like the theme and you like the cooperative aspect and you like getting your butt kicked a lot by a, by a board game. 
All right, so that's Xenoshift Onslaught. And now, our final round. It's time for the final round, guys. I'm sorry I disappeared there for a while, but you were doing a top ten list, and I always find other things to do during that. (laughs) The top ten things that Drew does while we're doing a top ten list. Exactly. The top one thing that Drew does not do when you're doing a top ten list is the top ten list. There you go. But I'm back for this. And upcoming this week, it's National Dog Week. Love your dog. This was something that was founded in 1928. So this is a real thing. Uh, So we think it should be a thing on Board Gamers Anonymous. Because there are dogs in board games. There are dogs about board games. But this week, we're going to specifically focus on specific characters of dogs in games. And I'll give you an example. If you look at the box of Lewis and Clark, right on the front next to whichever that dude was, Lewis or Clark, who's standing up in the front, like George Washington crossing the Delaware, you'll see a little dog. It's a famous dog in American history. Seaman made the, the trip all the way up and down the river, followed them all the way. And so the designers of Lewis and Clark, the expedition, honored Seaman with his very own card. And it's a fairly uh, reasonably priced card. It only costs one item to purchase, but he's a food gatherer. That's what you want in a dog when you're on an exposition. Go out and find that buffalo, and that's what he'll do for you. Good little dog riding there, sticking his head out the canoe with his tongue hanging out, enjoying the breeze. <laughs> that's my dog. Daniel, what do you got? Uh, so my dog's from Dead of Winter. That is Sparky the Stunt Dog. I think he is probably the best dog in gaming because, you know, he's got a cape and... That, of course, means he's the best dog. He's also a golden retriever. As a child, I had golden retrievers, so he kind of reminds me of the dogs I used to have when I was a kid. Uh, He's a decent fighter, a decent finder, and he can't be affected by zombies. Also, you can equip items to him normally, I think, so that kind of means you can, like, give him a gun, which... (laughs) I mean, I get that he's a stunt dog, so maybe he learned how to do that at some point, but it seems irresponsible. You know, just irresponsible. He might have passed the, the gun training course. You don't know that. <laughs> you never know. In some states, he probably could. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, but he is a uh, he is a great card. Uh, he's incredibly useful. They always put they put his uh, influences low. He's a, a ten. I feel like he should be the most important character. God, in he's this. such a morale booster. Come right, on. Like, yeah. think about. Any game when you – or any movie, right? When you want to show someone the, like a really evil person, you don't kill the people you care about. You kill the dog. That's right? when, when the dog dies, that is the moment you know it's a tragedy. So, yeah, there was a recent Keanu Reeves movie where when they kill his dog off, that sets him off. And he starts knocking out like the entire underworld mafia hitman kind of group because they mess with his dog, man. And everyone's like, I get it. Totally legitimate. Yeah. John Wick, man. Yeah. So Sparky the Stunt Dog. That's that's my best cool. dog in gaming. Everyone loves it. Chris. So my favorite dog in gaming has to be Rescue Dog. That's it. Rescue Dog from Flashpoint Fire Rescue. In one of the expansions, you can have the opportunity to play as Rescue Dog. Now, what's awesome about Rescue Dog, if you played Flashpoint Fire Rescue, is he starts off with 12 action points, which is like crazy number of action points. <laughs> so you get, to, you get to run him through the entire structure, but also he can move through damaged walls. 
So what you might want to do is have someone hack at a wall to create a hole, and then Rescue Dog can kind of run in there, or if there's explosions that are knocking walls down, he could go in there, reveal the victims with, for no action points, and then pull them out of there. So Rescue Dog, a true fire rescue hero, and he is my favorite, absolutely positively favorite character in Flashpoint Fire Rescue and my favorite dog in board gaming. But Chris, can Rescue Dog be unaffected by zombies? It doesn't matter. He moves so fast. They can't <laughs> catch Rescue Dog. It's Flashpoint Zombies. That's the next expansion, I'm sure. So he's got to be unaffected by zombies. <laughs> you just leave the building burning then? I... Well, look, a dog's got to do what a dog's got to do, man. <laughs> dog eat dog world. That is our tribute to National Dog Week on our final round. All right, Drew. Thanks so much. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. We also have a Patreon account. The more you support us, the more board gaming goodness we can get out to you. Until next week, this is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And we hope that you'll save us a seat at your favorite game. And save a seat for the dog, too. <laughs> Rescue dog! Oh, we should have mentioned Stella. Stella! That would have been <laughs> <Just> running around. <laughs> Nothing like a uh, thousand children in one pit bull.